Cancer journey is unique for everyone. It is time to figure out our new normal and there's no one size fits all manual. Welcome to the Cancer Cliff Notes podcast with Jen Cochran, because surviving is just the beginning. Welcome to episode 14 of the Cancer Cliff Notes. I'm Jen Cochran. My guest today is Robin McTigg. She's a master holistic healer, creator of a life of choice coaching. She's a teacher, numerologist, motivational map practitioner, speaker, and best-selling author. She combines her knowledge of psychology, conflict resolution, and other techniques with metaphysics and energy, resulting in a unique approach. She assists both adults and children to shift vibration and perspective, creating a life of freedom and choice. Her three C's for life are clarity, comprehension, and creation. She's experienced breast cancer and hepatitis C and many other challenges in her life and has been able to heal and move forward. Her mission is to assist others in their healing journeys in a safe, practical, and gentle way. Welcome, Robin. Robin is going to be sharing her journey with breast cancer. Thank you so much for having me. So for me, I was diagnosed just shortly after my 44th birthday, and it was a bit of a shock. I was the one that was the healthy one. People saw me as this person who was very fit. I ran every day. I ate well. What I didn't do is take care of myself as far as taking time for myself, really. It was all about the doing. So... I was doing everything for everyone else. I was on the strata. I was had a full-time job. I was doing the union work on the side. So there really wasn't any time for me. And so it was interesting because about six months before the diagnosis, I kept getting information. And I really hadn't tapped into that psychic part of me, though I'd had kind of like little things happen when I was a kid. For example, my mom and I were separated for a year when she was in hospital. And somehow I knew she was coming that day. And I had no way of knowing that. So it was really interesting. And I've made those connections later. So I just kept hearing something big in your life is going to change. And then something would happen. It's like, no, that's not big enough until that diagnosis of cancer. And then it's like, okay, this is it. Now what? And so it's a bit challenging. I'd gone for the probe where they go and look at the cells. And all the way along, they kept saying, oh, it's just calcification, nothing to worry about. And when they came up with the diagnosis of cancer, it was a real shock. And I really felt that betrayal because I wasn't in that mindset that this was a possibility. And it was interesting when my doctor's office called me to come in to tell me, It was like a Friday morning and it's like, oh, you have to come in now. And it's like, well, why do I have to come in now? It's like, it's Friday afternoon. Can't we just do this Monday morning? And no, you have to come in now. And the only thing that came to mind was I'd had a pap smear and my bone scan for osteoporosis because I have a family history. And so that's what I was thinking. I'd had some precancerous cells burnt out in my cervix a few years before. So I just figured it was something like that. And it's like this routine thing that I had to deal with again. And then my doctor, she just sat there and she was just like devastated to tell me, yeah, it was just such a shock. And I came back to work and it's like, okay, what do I do? It's like, I didn't even 
think that I could just go home and, and leave it and take care of myself. It's like I had to take care of people at work and let them know that I'm going to be away from work. And so then I went back to see the doctor who had done the initial part and it was in November. So it was getting close to Christmas. He said, Oh, now you have to go back to your doctor. And I just burst into tears. It's like, I have to go back to my doctor, wait for another referral to someone else. And, you know, we're coming up to Christmas and what am I going to do? And he said, well, I can treat you actually. He's in a different uh, municipality. So I said, that's okay. I don't care because we're to build a rapport and I really liked him. He was doing cancer research. He was looking at the markers in blood. And what he was hoping to find was certain markers where they could actually predict if women would get breast cancer and also be able to treat them with that. So I don't know. I haven't followed up to find out what happened. So he was going away to do research in December. So I had to get in really quick for the surgery. So mid-November, I went in. And then I go to the follow-up appointment. And it was, sorry, your margins aren't clear. We have to do surgery again. And I just was crestfallen. I just like, oh, no, not again. I'd been out walking and did too much for where I was. And so I got a hematoma in my breast too. So I had all this pain from that. So on one hand, it was great because then they could take care of that in the surgery. On the other hand, I only had two weeks of healing before I had to go back for another surgery. Right. So back to the surgery and then he's off. So I get the call to come in for the other follow-up and I asked them to send me the report and they sent me the report and it was the wrong one. So I'm looking at the first report that says the margins aren't clear and I'm just like, what? It was really interesting because I'd spoken to someone at work and they said, you make sure your margins are clear. That's number one with the breast cancer diagnosis. You have to make sure. And so I was like, oh, no. And so I go into the appointment, and it turns out they sent me the wrong report. <laughs> it was like such a relief. I just couldn't believe it. And so then it was getting to the cancer agency to get the markers put in for radiation. So they give you two little blue dots, permanent tattoos. So I got the mapping, they call it. And then I came home to wait for the call. And everything happened so fast, which was really surprising to me. So the meeting was in December and it's like, okay, beginning of the year after New Year's, you're starting every day for 16 treatments. And I ended up making it a bit of a game. Thankfully, I was with someone at the time that would drive me. So I just found the fatigue got more and more over time. And being light-skinned, my skin was very sensitive, and I had this big red scar. You know, my body would be like I'd be sitting watching TV, and it's like, no, sitting is not enough. You have to actually lay down. And it was like, okay. So I started to really listen to my body, and it's like, okay, <laughs> I don't feel like I have a choice anymore. And the radiation was a real challenge. I found it was just so fatiguing and I didn't want to eat. I was gaining weight, which didn't feel good to me because I had all this fitness before and I couldn't do things. And so it was a real challenge mentally. Then what happened, I really started to look at my life and it's like, how did I get here? And what's next? 
right? This hasn't been working, obviously, if this is what has happened. I just really went deep. I started to look at all my past traumas. I come from a very dysfunctional background with my family, alcoholic dad, rageaholic, mom mentally ill, suicidal. So I really went into that deep pain and really allowed myself to feel those feelings. And that was a real turning point for me. And I really just spent about six months on my sofa doing that. Then it was getting time to go back to work. And I was feeling really challenged. I thought, how can I be around these stressed out people again? I spent all this time going inward. I'm a different person. I'm in this quiet space. And I worked for a large organization at the time with very challenging clients because they were in pain as well. So I was going to the relaxation groups because I didn't know how to relax. <laughs> so that was really great. Most and people don't. No, no. When you're So I actually went to two groups, one at the cancer agency and one at my local hospital. So it was really good. I got the double dose. Someone told me about a retreat and it's called the Kalanish Society. And it was just amazing. And it was one of those things, they, I put my name in, they had a cancellation, I had an hour to make a decision, and it's like calling up my friend, can you find someone else for the play, can you take care of my cat? And it's like, I just knew it was right. And so I went to this retreat, and it was the only time they had it on this particular island, and it was just the most amazing place. It was in February, so it was no one at the resort, and I just had this big window overlooking the ocean and mountains and we had things like a one-on-one with a counselor. We had a one-on-one with the music therapist. We were fed well. We talked about dying. There was eight women, and we had some very seriously ill women. There's only two of us left alive. It was just a turning point, and I realized that that was my spiritual wake-up call, and things had to change. And so I came back and it's like, okay, I don't know what I'm doing, but let's go ahead. I had been working, doing the union work, and people wanted me to run for union president because we hadn't had a woman yet. And people respected me and thought I would do a good job. And I'm having lunch with someone and the woman said, are you going to run? And out of my mouth came, no, I'm going to be a healer. And I was kind of looking around like, who said that? (laughs) Funnily enough. She actually did become union president and did that for many years. So that was kind of the turning point. Then I found at a wine, cheese, and tarot card reading party, a woman that told me about a class that gave you energetic shielding and grounding so you could be around people. And same thing, I knew it was the right thing. I was in class the following week, and now I teach the system to adults and children because in the first week I could be around people again. It was just amazing. And I really started to trust myself and my connection to source and what that's all about. I did tamoxifen for two years and I didn't like all the side effects and I just really checked in with myself and I knew that the cancer was never going to come back and I didn't need to live in that fear anymore. And so I talked to my doctor and the oncologist and stopped that. And the other challenge I had was lymphedema I had in my right arm and the oncologist said, oh, you can't have it because you only had radiation. He was a new guy. Their own publication came out later saying it could happen. So luckily, I found a really good physio here where I live, and she measured my arm, and we got the sleeve. That all helped. As a runner as well, that's so important. Yeah. And unfortunately, lymphedema is not as well understood you're in Canada and here in the United States, it's not as well understood as it is in Europe. It used to be thought, well, I'm a good surgeon. 
my patients won't get lymphedema. I'm a bad scarer. So my body produces a lot of scar tissue. And as a result, I've had lymphedema. I had nine lymph nodes removed. I'm just a bad scarer. That's just the reality of my human form. Yeah, it's tough. Yeah. So I wore that for a year and a half and it did go down, though I feel that ongoing symptoms I have with inflammation are partly related to that. I did end up doing some reconstruction, which has not worked out well. So altogether, I've had five surgeries on my right side. And now with the Health Canada warnings and all of this that's going on, I was one of the first women in Canada to have the new style of silicone implant, which is the kind of gummy bear look to it. And they're saying those rough kind of ones are probably the worst. And so there's a huge group we have on Facebook about all these women that are getting explants. And I'm on a wait list to talk to the surgeon to find out what I can do. Because the first surgeon, first of all, how the surgery turned out, it it looks really bad. Then the surgeon I saw again, then That was the second surgeon. And she went in and she took out a ton of scar tissue because I was getting adhesion. Once I could start to walk again, I was having a really tight chest and I was having real difficulty moving my arm. And so I was sitting on the recumbent bike for a long time because that was the only exercise I could really do that could fit in, not cause the problem. So that was really great. And at the same time, I still feel that tightness and there's constriction and pain from the women I'm talking to. Those that get the explants have the inflammation and all those things release out of their body. It's kind of the gift that keeps on giving. So we keep learning and we do what we know with what we have. I don't have any ill will to them. I need to take care of myself. And that's what I've learned to keep asking questions, really be your own advocate, just keep questioning. You know, Health Canada is finally come around to say, yes, we agree that this is a problem. Yeah, absolutely. Advocacy is so important because there are so many times on this journey where what's happening to us isn't necessarily the, you know, quote unquote norm, what we're experiencing and what we're voicing. I think the more in touch you are with how your body functions, the more you're able to report And not everyone has that level of understanding or connection to their physical being. Can I ask, did you have a lumpectomy? Yes, I had two. They call them, they just call them partial mastectomies now. Okay. Yeah, so I had two of those. What stage was your... It was stage one. So many great nuggets in your story. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to dig into them a little bit more. We'll be right back. Enjoying the Cancer Cliff Notes podcast? Come on over to the Facebook group where you can join the community and participate in the conversation during the week. I hope to see you there. Now back to the show. Hi, we're back. I'm here with Robin and we are talking about her breast cancer journey. There are some amazing things that she shared during her diagnosis and her treatment process. One of the things that really stood out for me was your experience in your doctor's office. I find sometimes our medical professionals kind of run the gamut. There's those that are super amazing diagnosticians that are great at what they do, but have no bedside manner. There are those who are super, super caring and everyone's communication abilities run the spectrum. And it was interesting for me when you shared how your diagnosis was shared with you 
because my experience was quite different. How did your doctor's response and kind of delivery impact you and how you processed that information? Yeah, for me, she felt really apologetic. And I think she understood that kind of along the way, people had been saying that it all its calcification. And she was actually my advocate along the way because after the first mammogram that showed some calcification, the report came back and said, redo it in, I think it was six months. And she said, no, let's do it at three months. So she was on it and she was really following it and she wasn't allowing other people to tell her what to do. So I felt really close to her and felt a real kinship with her because even though we didn't always agree on things because she was medical professional and I was kind of a more alternate way of thinking kind of person. We had had some clashes. Sometimes she was right. Like for example, I had been vegetarian for about 10 years and I was not getting enough protein. And she told me that and I didn't believe her. But then when I started to eat real protein again, my body had been craving it and I felt so much better. So this definitely brought us to a place where we could talk about things. And I just felt really supported. It made me feel better with the news that was unexpected. And even after that, because cancer did become my life and I was doing research and the internet wasn't what it was today. So I still did as much research as I could and our cancer agency had a really good library, librarians to do research if we needed help. So for example, with the tamoxifen, I hadn't been able to find anyone who was premenopausal and there were no studies on it at the time. So I was in a real quandary whether or not to do it she said, yeah, it's really up to you. And I did go to the cancer support groups and spoke to women there. And I'd worked with doctors and spoke to them, but again, all postmenopausal. So I got the latest research, it just went with that. And my doctor was supportive of whatever the decision was for me. So that felt really good. And then once I'd actually finished treatment, she said, you know so much, you know more than me. And I would really recommend that you take the volunteer role with our Cancer Connect, where we would meet with the women and support them in their questions around diagnosis. And since then, we've gone online and, and do phone calls so I can talk to people across the country, which is really amazing. Just the hope that you give women when you say you're 19 years post-diagnosis, it just it's really heartwarming to me. That is absolutely amazing. I definitely feel like the best doctor-patient relationship is exactly what you described, where you can have a dialogue and you can agree and you can disagree and you can discuss. I think that is a really amazing testament to your doctor. Not all doctors necessarily take that level of discourse with patients. So I think that's absolutely amazing. With tamoxifen, that's now the only option for people that are premenopausal. And I was coming into this journey, you know, 13 years after you. And it's amazing. Every year, I feel like we're getting more and more information and treatments and when we need to do treatment and when we don't need to do treatment. And it changes all the time. And I think that's one of the biggest things is when women ask you about your history and it's like, this was then, but you really need to do the research now and find out what the current trends are because we are finding that. It is so many different diseases 
that's why we don't have one specific treatment. Absolutely. It's amazing within breast cancer with triple negative and HER2 positive and estrogen positive, progesterone positive. There's so many flavors. The treatment for each one is very unique. It's Definitely an interesting journey. And when you were going through your treatment, you talked about gaining weight. That's a big change between when you were originally going through your treatment and when I went through my treatment. I have a friend that's 14 years out. She was given a supplement to increase her appetite because they didn't know chemo for breast cancer was actually causing women to gain weight. My doctor was really specific about me not gaining weight and really watching what I ate during that process. And she was like, what? I wasn't told that. (laughs) But it's that difference of what we know and when we know it and how it gets communicated. The medical profession is unfortunately very slow in how the information gets pushed to the public from studies and scientifically derived information. And there's contradictions and then you have to see what are the actual parameters and yeah, there's just so much. Like the big controversy when I was going through was soy. I mean, I was eating some soy when I was vegetarian, I cut it out. And we have so many better alternatives like the almond milk and the coconut milk and all that. So we didn't have a lot of those choices when they were available. And just the supplements, I think it was IC9 or something it was called. And that was the big thing then, right? That was the supplement. And these things just shift with our knowledge, what is allowed into the country and all of those different things. Well, and I don't know if you see this in Canada. I know a friend of mine in the UK was commenting that when she comes to the state, she sees all the commercials for medication. In the UK, they don't have that at all. That's not a thing. We, We do have some US channels though. So you do see some of that, but not very much. And when I do see it, it's like, why would anyone ever want to take this medication? I know, right? Yes. I'll end with and possible death. Great. Sign me up for that. <laughs> what? I know. Yeah, I feel the same way. So in terms of the weight gain, that was something that I struggled with too, being a fit, healthy person, especially you had commented that you're a runner. I too am a runner. The weight gain, I, I had commented to someone in regard to the tamoxifen. I said, you know, the tamoxifen, one of the potential side effects, I don't believe a posted side effect is weight gain, but a posted side effect is depression. And I said, I'm not sure that the tamoxifen chemically creates depression. I think that the tamoxifen creates a host of other things that then cause us to become depressed. Yes, I'm with you on that because being premenopausal, it was all the menopausal symptoms. So the night sweats that were just like dripping uh, the weight gain. And for me, it was like 15 pounds in a month. Yeah, and, mine was 20. Yeah. And that's the first month of taking the tamoxifen. Just the mood swings and all of that. And, and that was one of the big things for me. It was like, okay, I'm going through this chemically. I finish taking it, then I have to go through it again. <laughs> it's like, do I really want to do this twice? <laughs> that's a difference between our treatments as well. I had chemo. So that actually put me into medical menopause before I started the tamoxifen. Even then, it was very mild. I could tell the time by my one hot flash every night. Like I would look at my watch and go, oh, day 30. Because I would start to get warm. And I remember my cousin was visiting and she was sitting next to me and she was like, um, 
are you okay? <laughs> because I was radiating heat off my body. And I was like, oh yeah, it's 830. <laughs> sure enough, it was 830. And I said, it'll pass in five minutes. It'll be gone. And five minutes later, she was like, okay, that's weird. Does this happen every day? I was like, yep, about 830, which was just crazy. But when you start taking the tamoxifen, you are plunged into menopause. There's no perimenopause. There's no, we're going to give you, you know, two extra milligrams a day to ramp you into this state. If you were not in menopause yesterday and today you're in menopause, welcome. Yes, it was a big shock. I didn't realize how quickly that would happen. It's quite something. I had real trouble in the morning. I would be just a puddle Mm -hmm. in the morning getting ready to do anything. If I had something early in the day, I might change my clothes three times before I finally made it out the door. (laughs) You're like, this is not sustainable. I gained all this weight (laughs) and I, and I can't stop sweating. Yeah. And then I just found with the menzies too, like the period just started to go real wonky and started to get these really heavy periods and just like flooding and like I'd never experienced that thank goodness I was at home because I just literally flooded had to change my clothes I've never had that before at that point mine had completely gone away and I stayed on the tamoxifen for a year and a half and when I went off the tamoxifen there was some question whether I would it would be permanent for me or not Um, because I hadn't had anything for two and a half years and then six months later I started having that I was like (laughs) oh god (laughs) they don't tell you (laughs) no and I actually called a friend who had been on tamoxifen and then gone off tamoxifen and it had been about the same time and she said oh yeah I think I remember it coming back with a vengeance it didn't come back regularly my third cycle that it was happening and it always seemed to be bad like that second 24 hours and I had to get on a plane and I was like oh god am I gonna make it I don't know I don't know if I'm gonna make it clothes (laughs) but yeah I ended up going actually to see a gynecologist turns out I had a cyst as well and so I don't know you know where that came from who knows but uh she did say that if it didn't start after she gave me kind of a time frame then they could do something and it it ended up starting to get better even though it took a long time to finally stop yeah it's a crazy process and I remember the doctor saying to me well I mean you still you still look good like it's it's not that bad. You've probably just never had weight on you before. And I was like, no, I have not. And this is not okay. Like, why, why is it, why are we saying this is okay? If I, if I wasn't on this medication and I came in here and had gained 20 pounds, you'd be like, WTF, why have you gained 20 pounds? Like it would not be okay. Right. Why is this okay? And for me, it just, yeah, kind of brought up that feeling of helplessness, right? Where we're doing what we can, we're eating right, and you have no control over it. So it just kind of puts you back into that state of, this is all happening to me, I can't do anything about it. So yeah, it's a crazy, crazy place, because it is like there is a helplessness to it. And that helplessness is somewhat compounded by not having it validated. Very interesting uh, experience. And then to know that you're doing the things and exercising and, you know, and diet and exercise are just not making a dent. It's sort of like, huh, at a loss. Yeah, it's like there's no information out there as to what else you can do. So it's, again, feeling like a bit lost about there doesn't seem to be any solutions. 
Yeah, absolutely. You brought up another really great point as well. I feel like there comes a time in every cancer journey where people start to really question all the components of their life and how those components are serving them or not serving them. And starting to make decisions about what they are and aren't available for. And you talked a little bit about that. Yeah. And that's the course I teach through what I learned, which is self first. And it's not the selfishness. It's about the oxygen mask where if we don't take care of ourselves first, we can't take care of anyone else. And it's really hard for women we're raised to take care of other people. It's just part of our nurturing instinct whether we we buy into it or not it's part of our dna it's part of our process and to learn something different and for me because i had to be the caregiver at a young age for my mom uh, like i was four the first time that she wow kill herself so i became responsible very young and so i took it all on if no one would do it and of course i felt responsible that i would need to step in and do it And that's how I ran my life. And then with the cancer, one of the things I learned, I read this great article and it was, what is most helpful for me is to say to people, you know, they want to do things for you and all of these things. And it's like, I can only deal with today. I can maybe figure out what I want for lunch, but don't even ask me about tomorrow because I just need to figure out what's going on in the here and now. So it brings us back to that figuring out what we actually need, like with the radiation and having to really listen to my body. So that started to bring me back to really think about what it is that I need. And I quit the strata. I finished my term and same with the union. And I knew that I needed to let that go. And you would get the polls. They needed some help with staffing. And would you be willing to go work out of this office And I thought, no, I'm moving towards what I want, which is the teaching and helping others. And that will take me away. I won't be available to do that. So I really had to take a stand and learn to say no and be okay with that. And being willing to open myself up to manifest what I needed. And that's what I loved about the course. So I'd been working in a job. I'd been there at the company about 18 years doing different things. When I came back, my brain was mush. I couldn't remember how to do my job and that shocked me. And so I did little projects and gradually got back into it and did a graduated return to work. I had that benefit that I could do that and got back to it. But then it's like, now I'm bored. My teacher said, wait and see, I think there's something new for you. And sure enough, brand new department with all my skills around the counseling and the conflict resolution. And I got to be in the excitement of building something new that really reinforced for me that I can create what I want and I can move towards what I want. And so I haven't really looked back from that. So I really look at what's in alignment with what I need and what feels good for me and uh, help others to learn to say no too, because it's actually both genders. It's just something that we learn. We think that we need to to be kind to people that way. And it's really not kindness. It's about not wanting to learn how to do correct conflict resolution and just say who we are and what we need, what we mean in a kind way. We can do that yes. in a way that treats us both with respect and kindness. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. You commented a little bit on the brain fog. That's another area that I definitely feel no one prepares us for. I agree. The depth of the brain fog can, as you said, shocking. In not being prepared for the possibility, it almost is blindsiding. Mm-hmm. In a lot of ways, for me, it had me questioning, like, what, what is happening? Like, why am I not able to do these things that should actually be pretty easy for me to do and not making any progress? How, what is happening here? Yeah, and I think it's similar to the lymphedema in that the medical thinking was, unless you have chemo, that doesn't happen as I've always been interested in brain and doing research and it's the trauma itself of what we've been through that creates that. It doesn't matter what you've had as far as treatment. It's the actual trauma itself that can create that because it's a safety mechanism about, you know, this caused that before. And I really had to work through that too. Like if I get too busy with work, I can feel that. And it's become less over time yeah but it's like the body saying careful you know what happened before when you overdid it and it's like I have to listen to that and it's like okay no I have a plan I'm doing it in a safe correct way for me and I'm not going to go to that place that I did before the the tamoxifen too I think has a lot of that effect we're just not aware fully aware of the definitely a journey I've been talking a lot this week about running your own race whatever that race may be it's okay to run our own race it doesn't have to make sense to anyone else because it's not their race (laughs) (laughs) yes we're all unique we all have our own ways of dealing with it and what works for me might not work for you so just really allowing ourselves that space to do that one of the women I know I use her phrase now and it was from being a survivor to a thriver to a graduate where we actually that was part of our life but it doesn't consume us anymore and and that's what I kind of use as as the term (laughs) I love that I think in that idea as well, survivor, thriver, graduate, it really shows the process of processing all of the all of the things, being able to own all of the things. I think that's an area that sometimes we struggle with. Yeah, because we do, you know, all the feelings, the shame and the blame and all of that. And it's like, what caused it? And like, for me, that was the most useless question. I have it. Let's deal with it. I'm not going to second guess what I did or didn't do in my life. Though I know that there, I did have like as a kid living on a farm for part of it and different things like chemical exposures. And we know how sensitive the breast tissue is. So I think there's a lot of environmental factors out there and all sorts of things. I'm not going to blame myself or shame myself about having it. It's, it's just happened and let's address it. Absolutely. I think that that is the most important thing that people can do for themselves as well, because there are so many components. It's our genetic makeup. It's our environment. It's the collection of all the environments that we've been in, in the course of our life. The reality is that we just don't know. No doctor can point at a specific thing and say, that's it. It was that thing right there. And in the absence of that sort of scientific certainty, I love that approach of this is happening. We're going to deal with it and not worry about what happened in the past or didn't happen in the past or. Yeah. Cause there's, to me, there's a component of forgiveness that we have to go through for ourselves. Yes. 
thank you so much for sharing your story and your experiences today. I love your Cancer Connect program and all the work that you're doing there. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. My pleasure as well. Thank you. Thank you, Robin, for sharing your journey today. One of the things I love about the people I speak with is there seems to be this interesting mix of East meets West in approaches to the challenges of cancer. In recent weeks, my guests have been striking a balance. It isn't black and white. It isn't just one way to solve the challenge. I also find that nearly everyone takes stock of the state of their life. Robin and I are both advocates for empowering our clients' choices. For this week's Personal Consciousness Minute, I want to talk about the Law of Sacrifice. The Law of Sacrifice is the universal law that tells us something always has to be sacrificed for something else. So if you think of it this way, if you buy a journal and you pay a fee or you use points or you exchange some type of barter, whatever your choice is, there is an exchange, one thing for another. The same is true of time. We have a finite amount. In order to do one activity, it may mean another is sacrificed in its place. We have to make a choice. What is one thing on your wish list that you could do today if you had the time? What thing is it that you keep putting off because of the busyness of life? Now, I want you to think... What item can I say no to today in order to do that thing I really want to do, yet I'm not making time for? Your challenge is to exchange some time to go do that thing. If perhaps you're thinking of a large thing that might take a lot of time and that feels too big, choose something a little bit smaller. Maybe read a book that you've been wanting to read for enjoyment for an hour Or go out for a walk in nature. Spend some time in nature. It doesn't have to be grand, though I like grand as well. Come on over to the Cancer Cliff Notes Facebook group and join Robin and I, as well as my previous guests and other people involved in a cancer journey. Hope to see you there and come back next week when my guest and I combine a Predator movie reference with second opinions and community magic. Have a great week and thanks for listening.